0: Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to the podcast series, Faculty and Research. This week, joining us is Dr. John McNeil, a university professor in the School of Foreign Service and the Department of History here. He teaches world history, environmental history, and international history at Georgetown. He also directs PhD students, mainly those who are focusing their work on environmental history. Considered by many to be a pioneer in the field of environmental history, John's written six books, the most notable being his work from 2000 entitled Something New Under the Sun, An Environmental History of the 20th Century World, which argues that human activity during the 20th century led to environmental damage on an unprecedented scale. John was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2017 and recently elected president of the American Historical Association. John, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bob, glad to be here.
0: So let's start with your your new office as president of the American Historical Association. I know some wonder how uh, academics, what they get out of their activity within a professional association and and now that you were elected a a leader of that reflect for us if you will on what you get out of your what you've gotten out of your membership in the American Historical Association.
1: So I've been a member of the AHA as we call it since I got a tenure track job which is uh, more than 30 years ago and Early in my career, what I got out of it was probably mainly an efficient way to expand my networks and contacts and the intellectual stimuli that I received, mainly by going to the annual meeting, which I did uh, more often than not. Meeting people I otherwise wouldn't meet, listening to talks I otherwise wouldn't hear. But since about 2011, I've been much more involved in AHA affairs because I served as a vice president for the research division, which was interesting and educational. And then now in 2019, I am president. So the last uh, eight years or so, my involvement has been much greater. And what I get out of it is a lot of headaches, but also a deeper understanding of the variety of people in the historical profession and the variety of work that goes on in the historical profession because as vice president and president I am necessarily trying to attune myself to the entirety of the historical profession not just the province that I inhabit myself.
0: So I I know that these are acts of uh, service and on behalf of, I guess, other historians, I'm sure you're thanked for that that service. Give give us a sense of, so what are the big issues facing AHA, AHA right now? What are the issues on the table? So in the
1: immediate sense, the issues change from month to month. The ones that I'm constantly dealing with in the putting out fires category are protests of mistreatment of historians around the world, which happens uh, all too frequently. And I'm now persona non grata in several countries for having signed my name to letters, which I usually write, objecting to imprisonments, to other forms of mistreatment of historians. So that happens just about every month.
0: Has this gotten worse? Yes, it you, has you gotten believe? worse. Yeah.
1: It has gotten worse. Probably for two reasons. One is that, as you're well aware, there's uh, something of a illiberal and authoritarian turn in many countries uh, in the world, which translates into more imprisonments and other forms of mistreatment, harassment of intellectuals, not just historians. Second reason is, as the AHA responds to more such cases its membership asks it to respond to even more such cases. So both these things are going on. keeps me busy and engaged in the world in ways that I otherwise would not be. But there are bigger, from the point of view of the profession, bigger, more long-term issues that are interesting to think about, although hard to deal with from the vantage point of policy. One of them is the trends in enrollments and majors, which for history have been uh, negative since 2008. They seem to have leveled off, but they don't seem to be bouncing back. And that's a concern for the AHA. Intellectually, this is more interesting to me than it is to lots of other people, and it will probably form the basis of my presidential address in January. Intellectually, I think there's a transitional moment at hand in the history profession. We are increasingly presented with data about the human past that do not come from texts, do not come from the familiar sources that historians have trained themselves to analyze, but instead come from the natural sciences. And right now, the one that is gushing forth new data about the past fastest is genetics, or a subset thereof, paleogenomics. To me it's really interesting that the sovereignty over the interpretation of the past is being fragmented and diluted, and other fields that formerly had very little to say about human history are having more and more to say about it. I think the history profession needs to adapt to this and to the extent possible, collaborate with the natural scientists who are generating these data, but also be alive to some of the possible pitfalls, both of the collaboration and of, I would say, naively presented data, particularly from the field of genetics.
0: So are there, uh, when you go to your annual meetings now, are there scholars who are presenting historical products or products in the history using these techniques who who aren't in some sense certified historians? Or are they presenting their work elsewhere?
1: Uh, They're mainly presenting their work elsewhere in their own intellectual and scientific communities. But they are also presenting their work at the annual meeting of the AHA. So last year in Chicago, we had a plenary session precisely about genetics and the promise and perils of that sort of work. And we'll have some other sessions about it this coming January in New York. I'm not the only person who's interested in this, so it is happening. But in the long term, I think it's going to happen a scale that is an order of magnitude or two greater than what we now experience. The future that I foresee is a history profession that's very different methodologically from what it has Mm -hmm. been for the last 150 years.
0: So this is a set of tools imported from another discipline that are actually being used within history. History as a field, though as as my weak understanding informs me, has often been outward looking and looking at other fields as a focus of of work. Your own work in environmental history, it seems to me, is an example of that.
1: Yes, history has been outward looking for many decades and typically outward looking towards the social sciences and certain parts of the humanities, literature and art history in particular. Environmental history, which is where I do most of my own research, has from its outset, which is only about 40 years old as a self conscious subdiscipline, from its outset has dabbled in natural science data, as I have done for most of my career. But in that sense, you, one could say that environmental history is, has gone down a path that the history discipline in general is about to go down. That's possible. But it has all sorts of implications, I think, for what kinds of things historians study. So, for example, information coming out of paleogenetics is much more articulate about the deeper past than it is about the last two centuries. This is a complete reversal of where... The texts take us. Text-based history is much richer for the last two centuries because there's so many more documents from the last two centuries. But the reverse is true when one looks at the information available through paleogenomics. And then with respect to parts of the world, there are parts of the world for which we have virtually no documentation until the last century or two, let us say Sub-Saharan Africa. When it comes to paleogenomic data, that is not the case. The blank spots are actually likely to be communities who feel that their ancestors' tissues and bones are sacred and should never be examined. So the blank spots are going to change. The areas of potential focus are going to change. It's, a, I think, a moment of transition coming upon us.
0: And it seems to me that there will be that period where there are available to a historian documents in archives and this new genetic information, which would be an interesting period because you'll be faced with two different sets of observations uh, to to craft the, the narrative of that period.
1: Yes, and ultimately that should result in fuller and more reliable narratives. Historians have always dealt with conflicting information, sources that disagree and assessing them carefully and judging which ones are to be preferred to others is part of the historian's task and training. That task is going to get harder and the training is going to have to get either more diverse or the operation is going to have to become more collaborative or perhaps a little bit of both but there will be um, large patches of the human past that are illuminated both by textual evidence and by data coming out of the natural sciences. And that can only improve our understanding of the past.
0: I wonder if we could go to, to your own uh, history, as it were. So um, you, you've said that you've been working for many decades in, in environmental history, and I wonder if you could recall the ingredients of the, the, the intrigue that you initially bought brought to that uh, choice of subfield. Uh, why was why were you curious about this initially?
1: The two main reasons that I can recollect. One is on a rainy afternoon at Duke University, I encountered a book. It's called *The Columbian Exchange*, written by Alfred Crosby, which presented a vision of history that I had never imagined before. The book is about the exchange of plants, animals, and pathogens between, on the one hand, the Americas, and on the other hand, Africa and Eurasia, in the wake of Columbus's voyage of 1492. Biotic provinces that had been sundered 50 to 100 million years ago by continental drift were reunited in a flash by oceanic voyages with all sorts of interesting consequences. I had never thought in these terms Crosby taught me to think in those terms in an afternoon. That's one experience. The second experience is related to the serendipities of life. After I finished my PhD, I was flamboyantly unsuccessful in the academic job market for more than two years. And by luck, I started working for biologists at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory, who were then doing preliminary and primitive modeling of the global carbon cycle. And they needed historical data about land cover in various parts of the world. At that juncture, they were working specifically on Latin America. They needed somebody who could read Spanish and Portuguese. I could read Spanish, and I could fake it with respect to Portuguese. So I worked for them for a year and a half. And that, too, was an eye-opening experience rubbing shoulders on a regular basis with people who call themselves systems ecologists. And this is when I encountered for the first time the vision of grand-scale changes in the Earth system to basic biogeochemical cycles, carbon cycle in particular at that point. But the same thing was true and was ongoing with respect to the sulfur cycle, nitrogen cycle and several other less significant biogeochemical cycles. So I began to see things in a different light because I was working for people at the Marine Biological Laboratory, because I could not get a job of the sort that I had been trying to get and train myself for. It was a blessing in disguise as far as I could say. So.
0: So, so what do you think would have happened if you hadn't had uh, done the Woods Hole appointment? What would you have done, do you think? Well, my other job at
1: that time was uh, laying asphalt shingle on houses in Durham, North Carolina, which paid reasonably well, but it's not a good lifetime career. There are no old roofers. They either quit or fall off a roof before they get old. I might, might I might have succeeded eventually in the uh, academic job market. I did succeed eventually in the academic job market, but I might have gone in an entirely different direction, not into environmental history. but the sort of history that I was trained to do as a graduate student, which was more conventional by any measure, more focused on political, economic, administrative history, which I still find interesting, but would have been a very diff- different career for me.
0: Mm-hmm. In an in unanticipated way, the Woods Hole assignment was a postdoc for you, it seems. Uh, yes. In a, in, and allowed you an interdisciplinary career that you might not have had. Yes, it was not officially
1: a postdoc. I was a contract researcher, but it functioned something as a postdoc. And so did roofing, because it paid me. I was off the roof by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I had several hours to work on my scholarship before I needed to get up and do it again.
0: So one of the things that students often are curious about faculty is uh, how they... Find an area uh, that becomes a lifelong motivating force for them, uh, that they continue to be curious and maintain that curiosity, and it propels them ever forward. How do you describe the, to to a student sort of the eras of your own career, and and uh, h- h- what what keeps driving you about this? Well, there are probably
1: two things that keep driving me within the subfield of environmental history. One is that it's where my comparative advantage lies. I got better at that than I got at other things. So the rewards to staying in that broad area are greater than the rewards of trying to retool entirely and become uh, an intellectual historian or a chemist. Secondly, with respect to environmental history, it has been obvious to me since I started in the field that this has some potential social utility because of the scale and scope of environmental crisis around the world. And insofar as we all hanker to be useful, which may not be a universal among human beings, but it's widely spread among us, environmental history has a better chance, I think, of that than most other things that I could be doing within the field history that I was trained in. So those are the two things that I think that keep me focused, as focused as I am, which by the standards of the historical profession is not very focused because I work on different regions of the world. Most historians are able to say I'm a historian of Japan or I'm a historian of Latin America and that is where I do all my work. It's not the case for me. I've done some work in Southern Europe and North Africa, some in the Caribbean, some in the South Pacific, some global scale. Attempts are much more inconsistent geographically than normal historians.
0: Does that type of focus also lead you to unusual collaborations? Do you do do more collaborative work than a typical historian?
1: Yes. Typical historians do their collaborative work in a a shielded, shaded fashion. That is, everybody gets other people to read their work and improve it. But formal collaborations and co-authorship is quite rare among historian. In my case, I've done a lot of that, especially in the last uh, six or eight years, mainly not with other historians. In my case, it's primarily with geologists, because I am part of something called the Anthropocene Working Group, 37 scientists, 32 of them, I think, are geologists, and we are collectively tasked with figuring out whether or not the so-called geochronostratigraphic chart, the geological time scale, as ordinary people call it, needs to be revised, and specifically needs to be revised so as to include something called the Anthropocene. That's an interesting question, and the geologists are sovereign over the geological time scale. They get to decide whether it gets altered or not, although the term and concept, Anthropocene, has leaked out into many different parts of science, academia, and culture in general. But because of my participation in that group, I'm co-authoring papers frequently, jacking up my citation count.
0: So give us a kind of an insight into Uh, the activities of of that group, and what have you learned in terms of cross-discipline communication? How do you do that effectively, and how long does it take before you get a sense of mutual respect between the parties? Well, I have learned what many people have already known, which
1: is that it can be very difficult to communicate efficiently across disciplines as separate from one another as geology and history. They both deal with the past, but Beyond that, there are more differences than similarities. And because the Anthropocene Working Group is mainly geologists, I have to meet them more than halfway. They don't need to learn much about my discipline. I need to learn more about their discipline, because our discussions, our group emails, use the vocabulary of geology. So I have to uh, learn that, which I have not, uh, by any means, mastered but I'm slowly improving my literacy.
0: So maybe we have time for, for one more thing. What, what are you working on right now? What, what's the thing that you find yourself thinking about at odd moments because you're so intrigued with the, uh, the nature of the inquiry?
1: The answer is going to be more complicated than you want, and it is, a, for better or for worse, typical of me. There are four things going on. One of them is a world history textbook, which I've almost finished revising. It's uh, half a million words long. Volume one should be published in January, but I'm still working on things like illustrations and maps. Number two is a long essay about the disease environment in the Caribbean region over the last 7,200 years, which is as long as human beings have existed in the Caribbean, and here I'm packaging it in terms of a concept that I learned from one of my younger SFS colleagues, Emily Mendenhall, who writes about syndemics. Syndemics means the confluence of multiple infections and social and environmental factors that exacerbate the impact of infections. So I'm using that concept retroactively or historically which is not normally done that's uh, project number two and I've written that basically in production. Thirdly, I have a book in view on the environmental history of the Industrial Revolution, a 19th century story, in some respects a precursor to the book you mentioned, Something New Under the Sun, but also a new way to understand the meaning of industrialization around the world. And number four is work on the Anthropocene, which is all uh, collaborative, mainly with geologists. So I'm doing all those things at the same time, which has its advantages, but also
0: well, as a colleague of yours, I uh, support that strategy and thank you for working on multiple things at the same time because uh, the products you're producing are of value to us all. So thank you, John McNeil, for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Bob. I enjoyed every minute.